0: I try to focus on loving him with everything i have and heart meaning emotionally spiritually mentally and physically you know it's giving everything i have to all i know about myself to everything i know about him so yeah for me praise is very similar to worship Uh, i don't consider myself having a decent voice singing voice but uh, somehow on sunday mornings The Spirit seems to uh, allow me to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. I uh, feel that is the most reverent way that we can show our thanksgiving to Him, and I pray that we can continue to do that. Um, I praise God by bringing faith into my conversations with people that I love and with people who both love God and people who don't love God. And I just try to bring God into my everyday activities. Uh, Matthew, how do you (laughs) praise God? I praise God by going to church every Sunday and by praying. Oh, I love that so much. I love when people of different space and different uh, backgrounds that were just talking about how we praise and worship God together. Uh, If I haven't met you, my name's Dale. Hello. We're moving on. Hi, Dale. Hi. There's a lot of noise in this world, don't you agree? Like things can just get really noisy. There's a lot of voices, there's a lot of things, there's um, a lot of opinions, right? I don't really need to convince you of that. It kind of reminds me, uh, metaphorically, of the noise in this world might be like being at Union Square in San Francisco. There's a lot of things going on. A lot of things trying to get your attention, come into this store, people doing this, or cars honking for different reasons. Everybody's having their own experience and expressing themselves in a way that can be really, really, really noisy and really, really, really loud. At the same time, I love cities. I love what they're like. I don't love everything in cities, but I love the feel of them. There was one time I was in Union Square. I think Lisa Ann and I went up and they were uh, going into some stores to shop, let's just say I was less interested in going into those stores, which is like 99% of them. So I was up in Union Square just kind of watching people, and they were doing their thing. And different things were happening, and then I, I saw this group of people, they started to set up. They set up like a keyboard, and they had like music stands, and I'm like, wow, this, this looks like a church worship team. I'm like, there's no way, there's no way this is a church worship team. But in my head, and what I've seen before, I'm like, this looks like a church worship team setting up in Union Square, like they got, they're all super nervous and really didn't talk to each other beforehand, and then they set up and they started playing. And it was definitely a church worship team. They were singing songs that we sing in here in church. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm in Union Square hearing this church worship team. But they were so nervous that they didn't say anything between songs. They just kept playing. And, but the girl who was singing, man, that girl could sing like an angel. So a lot like when you're on an airplane and they're talking about the things to do in case of emergency and most people are just looking down, that was kind of the response of Union Square at the time. So I thought, I'm going to sit closer. I probably freaked them out a little bit because I was like 10 feet away from them going like this. And they're like, what's going on here? But I loved it. I loved in that moment, metaphorically or even experientially, that I'm here in the city with so much noise hearing this. It came time for me to meet Lisa and Anna, so I started walking down, if you know San Francisco at all, but Union Square, and there's a street called Powell. Powell's filled with noise and cable cars and people. I'm walking away from Union Square, and I can still hear it. The band started to play the song, How Great Is Our God. And I could hear it as I'm walking down the street. And there was horn, There's so much noise, but as I'm walking away, I'm like, I can't believe I can still hear this. And it's not because the noise was louder than everything else, it's because I was locked into it while I was there, so that as I was walking away, it's the noise, the sound I could continue to hear for block after block after block. I ran into some friends randomly at this Starbucks at four blocks away, and I'm like, can you hear the worship music? And they're like, no. That was a while ago, but I remember that day so clearly that when you lock into something, it will come with you if you continue to allow it to in the midst of so much noise. So for the next few minutes... I want us to try to lock into something. I want us to go down three different paths. I want you to engage with God in a way of really hearing what is he saying to you. I want you to engage with God to what is he saying to this church, to our church. And I want you to engage with God about how those things intertwine. When we talk about the things we're going to talk about today, which are so essential to being together, even as a couple, as a friend, as a church, it's so easy to think, man, I hope this other person is listening today. But this is for you. I want us to engage with this in such a way that even when we walk away, we continue to listen and hear God's voice, His words, what He's asking you to let go of. Some of it is good, the things that we need to let go of it, and some of it's really bad because he has something new for you and new for us. Father, we give this to you. I ask for your help. I love the people in this room. I love walking around and hugging people that are here for the first time today and those who are here for the thousandth time today. Holy Spirit, come in your name. Amen. There was a novel written by a guy named Brian Moore he wrote a book called The Lonely Passion of Judith Hearn. The story goes like this, Judith grew up in Dublin, Ireland. She was loved, respected, had so many friends, was super close with her family. She was very content. But there was a nagging thing going on inside of Judith Hearn as she was getting older. And getting closer to that stage in her life where she became unaware or fearful that could I ever have kids, that she was unmarried and also wanted to have a family, that she started to pull away and became inwardly bitter. None of her friends, none of her family knew what was going on because they saw the outward. But she had this goal, this dream of what she wanted in her life. It wasn't happening like she thought, and she thought soon this will be taken away from me. The story, the novel goes on that she meets this American guy. She falls in love with him. But it turns out that he had different things of why he was in this relationship. But in her mind, it grew and grew and nobody was really aware of the desperation that she found herself in because she wasn't achieving or experiencing the thoughts that she had. One night out of a bit of of, uh, courage, She's like, I'm not gonna wait for this guy. I'm initiating this. So she proposes to him. But he says to Judith, I'm only really friends with you because I thought I could help you could help me start this restaurant. So he leaves and there's a heartbroken. In this story, Judith hits, just crashes. She goes on drinking binges. She goes in deep depression. She rejects God, she curses God, she just falls apart because her unachieved dream and hope have been shattered forever, she thought. Later in the story, as she's coming out of the hospital, and there is a redeeming part of this story. The man comes back, and he says, "How wrong he has been." So he brings her roses and flowers, whatever, and chocolates, whatever he thought he could bring, and he proposes to her. This time she takes the roses and hands them right back to him. And her response is deeper than so much of our theological thoughts. This is what she says. Thank you, but no thank you. I'm not interested in marrying you, and to tell you why, I need to tell you a story. When you're a little girl, you dream of the perfect life you'll have. You will grow up to have a beautiful body, meet the perfect man, marry him, and have wonderful children. Live in a wonderful home, and a wonderful neighborhood, and have wonderful friends. But as you get older and that dream doesn't happen, you begin to revise it downward. You scale down your expectations and begin to look for someone to marry who doesn't have to be so perfect until you get to be like I was, where unconsciously you get so desperate that you would marry anyone, even if they are as common as dirt. Well, I learned something by losing myself and then refinding myself. I learned that if I can receive the Spirit for who I am now, it doesn't matter whether I'm married or unmarried. I can be happy either way. My happiness doesn't depend upon somebody outside of me, but upon being at peace with what's inside of me. The novel ends with Judith in a taxicab leaving the hospital, taking this man's business card, and she makes a paper airplane out of it and throws it out the window. You see, metaphorically, Pentecost, or the coming of the Spirit, has taken place for Judith. See, our Holy Spirit isn't a generic spirit, but our Holy Spirit is a specific spirit, just as you are a specific person. For Judith, it meant receiving a spirit for somebody who was approaching menopause without a husband or a children or what God has now. And this is a term that's used by many in theological circles called the Paschal Mystery. The Paschal Mystery. You see, Paschal is Latin for things of Easter, as is the Greek translation. The things of Easter, mystery. It's a spiritual practice of rhythm of these things, of Jesus' death, his resurrection, his 40 days on earth, his ascension, and then Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit. As author Ronald Roheiser writes, he writes this, The Paschal mystery is the mystery of how we, after undergoing some kind of death, receive new life and new spirit. Jesus, in both his teaching and in his life, showed us a clear paradigm of how this should happen. You see, Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples right before he died, he says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it only remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. These words right here that Jesus shared defines this mystery. Namely, in order to come to a fuller life, a bigger life, and life in the Spirit, we must be constantly letting go of the past life, the past spirit. Some things I want you to understand as we journey in the next just 20 plus minutes or so. The first is this, I'm talking about two different kinds of death. There's a terminal death, there's a physical death where we literally die. But then there's this Paschal death. It's the ending of one kind of life, what you're currently experiencing now potentially that opens the person to undergoing and receive a deeper, richer, fuller life. That image of the grain dying and falling to the ground and expanding is the Paschal death in life. I'm also referencing two kinds of life. There's a resuscitated life that restores you to who you were, but there's a resurrected life It's the reception of something radically new, better than the previous. And how often we cling to certain things, we just wish it was like it was. That's resuscitation. When God says, how about resurrection? How about something new and fresh? So this is the process of transformation for all of us, within which we are given both new life and new spirit. It begins with suffering and death. It moves on to reception of a new life, spends some time giving the old and adjusting to the new, and when the old life has been truly let go of, a new spirit for life we are already living. Let me just be clear. In a theological way, this is what it looks like. There are distinct moments in this cycle from Jesus. There's Good Friday, it's the loss of life, real death. There's Easter Sunday, the reception of new life. There's the 40 days when he appeared to so many people. It's a time of readjustment to the new, but also grieving the old. There's ascension when Jesus returned to the Father of letting go of the old, letting it bless you, yet refusing to cling to it. And then there's this idea of Pentecost, the reception of new spirit for the new life one is already living. Another way of seeing this regular practice, even I would encourage you, almost the daily rhythm, is this. Name your deaths those things that are no longer you. Claim your births, what is true about you. Grieve what you have lost and adjust to the new reality. Do not cling to the old, but let it ascend and give you its blessing. And then accept the spirit of the life that you are in fact now living. Okay, I want to do three things at this point. I want to present some scenarios for what this means for you. For me, I'm in this as well. I want to present some scenarios for this church. and Then I'm going to invite you to verbally respond with me. Personally, scenario number one, and I'm not thinking of anybody specific when I say this, and some of you may boo me. Imagine today you woke up and it's your 70th birthday. Yeah, I hear the groans back here. This really could be any birthday. It's a birthday in your future. Maybe it's your present birthday. It's almost my wife's birthday. There's no way I'm telling you what age she is turning. I'll let you guess yourself, but we met in college. So today's your 70th birthday. You're no longer a young person. Come on. Boo. Yes, I am. No matter what you've done to improve your physical body, you're no longer young. But you are but you are fully alive. Yes, your youth is gone, but you are not gone. You have physical limitations compared to a 20-year-old version of yourself, but you hopefully are a fuller, wiser, richer life than before. With the Passover paradigm in terms of your youth, if it's your 70th birthday, here is your status. Good Friday has happened. I'm sorry to tell you, you're no longer 20. Your youth has died. But res- stop with the booing. Resurrection has happened. You have already received the life of a 70-year-old. New life, one that is richer, fuller, more prospective, and wiser than a 20-year-old. And now you have a choice. You can refuse to grieve that you're no longer 20 and do everything you can to hang on to it, including your clothes, the music you listen to, and the activities you participated in, and your children will be like, why are you doing this? (laughs) You can be like Mary Magdalene at the resurrection day where she just clung to Jesus, and he's like, you've got to let me go. If you do that cling, you'll be blocking something, you'll be blocking this ascension, and you'll be unhappy, fearful, and frustrated seven-year-old because, like Judith Hearn before her breakdown, you will try to be living your life of somebody else. A new spirit can't happen for you, and you'll daily grow more fearful and unhappy about aging. Or you could let go. And you can say things like, it was good to be 20. Man, it was good to be 30. It was good to be 40. It was great to be 50, even 60, but it's even better to be 70. It is that point when Pentecost happens. You'll receive the Spirit that God has for you right now, for who you are right now. Ronald Roheiser continues his quote from before, and he says, Some of the happiest people in the whole world are 70 years old, and some of the unhappiest people in the world are that age. The difference is not who kept himself or herself the slimmest and most youthful looking, but in Pentecost, the happy 70-year-old is a woman or man who has received the Spirit for someone that age, the Spirit which Scripture says is given to each of us in the most particular way for each particular circumstance. You see, not letting go, no matter what it is, can breed bitterness. Not letting go keeps us immature. And not letting go blocks the space for new. There's a second scenario. For me, a few years after I received the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis and it started to take an effect on me, I needed to let go and to grieve what could no longer be in order for it to ascend. I needed to celebrate the things that I used to be able to do and mourn that I could no longer do them so that I could have a new spirit within me in the midst of my physical brokenness. Here's how I thought. I needed to manage an ascension. I needed to grieve what has died, and then when the time was right, let it go. Let it ascend so that I could receive the spirit for someone in my current life experience. This does not mean I gave up on God healing me. I'm just no longer a person who needs to be physically healed to experience the fullness of life God offers. Some of the happiest people in this world are experiencing deep physical pain and limitations, and some of the most unhappiest are experiencing the same. The difference lies not so much in the extent of the pain or the quality of therapy, but in the letting go to receive the new Scenario three, your relationships and your hopes. Is there something a kind of brokenness? Maybe something is off. Maybe a bond has been broken a bit that was there before between you and another person. Maybe there's a huge accumulation of stories that you've told yourself about another person or a situation, and maybe there's a huge accumulation of stories they've told themselves about you. Maybe you had hopes and dreams, or things just didn't go the way you thought they would go. Maybe you just wanted things for how they used to be. You'd give anything for the way it was. What do you need to die to today? What do you need to repent of today? What do you need to remember to mourn, to celebrate? Because then we let it ascend up to God and get ready to receive something new. This process always includes repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation with each other. And that includes those in this room, and that includes those no longer in this room, and that includes people who've never been in this room. So here's what I found to be true. To attempt to move on past our sin without truth-telling is to cheapen God's grace. The process of this Passover and Pentecost is just telling the truth to ourselves. This process has to include repentance, and it has to include celebration. So together as a church, what does this mean to us? And you're like, this is my first day. Welcome. I've been here longer than you, Dale. I know more. Welcome. I don't stand here as someone saying you. I stand here as someone saying us. As we see in Philippians 1, the verses that have been guiding us throughout this whole series... Paul gets to this point where he writes this. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And this part is so amazing. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This doesn't mean he just keeps built, but it means that he keeps moving forward. God's not done. For the past 75 years, people have gathered and partnered and thrived as this church here in Las Gatos and God's work continues to move us forward because that's who God is. It's not a work of resuscitating things that were. It is a work of resurrection to bring us to a place that is not yet. When we're a people that cling to what was, whether it's in a personal life or as a church or anything else, we're simply saying, resuscitation's good enough. When God's saying, I got resurrection for you, I got something new. For those who have hit rock bottom, they only want, they don't want just resuscitation. They're like, God, you just take me and make a new life out of me. There have been seasons over different decades of this church of thriving and significant movements of the spirit. People coming to a saving relationship with Jesus. There's been seasons in every decade of this church where there have been seasons of discord and frustration as well. Cuz that's what happens when people gather. We love to remember the thriving. We're good at remember the thriving. And some, we love to hang on to the discord because it feels like it gives us some kind of power or reason to not partner. But we become disillusioned about the hurt. And as people in general, I'm there with you, we just try to avoid honest conversations because they make us feel awkward. And we don't want to shame anybody. We don't want to cast disparagements, but we avoid those things. I have this sticker. Well, I think I lost it, because I put it somewhere. But it said, the older I am, the better I was. And I just laugh, because when people go, like, hey, what kind of football player were you? I'm like, man, I was amazing. (laughs) But I can say that, because we don't have any video footage from my time I played. So nobody really knows. Today, I'm going to the Niner game. when people ask me, what are your hobbies? I, I go to the Niner game. <laughs> That's just my thing. If i tickets for a long time. Lisa, are gonna go, I are going to go today. And, um, when I was 14 years old, this has to do with the message. Don't just <laughs> think, well, and then the pastor talked about the Niners. <laughs> well, we just need extra prayer as well. So <laughs> When I was 14 years old, if you're not a 49er fan, just pay attention. This is helpful. When I was 14 years old, Joe Montana went on sprint right, avoided the rush of the evil Dallas Cowboys and threw over them to Dwight Clark who made the catch that changed, I like to say, the world. (laughs) It really just changed my life and the region around me. I remember as a 14 year old boy being euphoric beyond belief. You know what I don't remember about that day? Joe Montana threw three interceptions. And the 49ers turned the ball over six times, and they said, I don't remember any of that. In fact, when I think about Joe Montana, which you may in my home office say, you have an issue, Dale, is I have like six autographed things of Joe Montana, jerseys, this and that, that people give me because they're like, you love Joe. I'm like, I need to receive this. (laughs) I don't remember a single interception that he ever threw. I don't think Joe did anything wrong. I've watched the documentary, I know, but I think it was doctored, no. If I go to the game today and compare the memory I have of Joe Montana with the present version of Jimmy Garoppolo out there, I will be continually disappointed. Not because there's anything wrong with Jimmy, you can talk to me later, but the memory I have of what was. Now, let's say I'm in the stadium and I'm yelling, put in Joe Montana! Put in Joe. The people around me who all know me now for the past years of sitting with them would be like, that's hilarious. But what say I kept saying it over and over and over? They would look at me and say, Dale, you know that Joe Montana is 66 years old and struggles with arthritis. That's the truth. Just as foolish as it would be for me to throw in a memory of how I thought things were. Is as foolish for us to hang on to something and we go, if I could just get my life back there, if we could just get the church back there. God's been working in areas of renewal thousands of years. Even to the prophet Isaiah, he says, see, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness with streams in the wasteland. The prophet Ezekiel, which was hundreds of years before Jesus was even alive, says, I will give you a new heart, and I put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you the heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be very careful to keep my laws. You see, this isn't just a new thing. God's been working renewal for thousands of years. But it starts by being truth tellers by being compassionate, empathetic people who have been transformed by God's grace and peace, who have been restored from his shalom and have decided to partner together. So let's tell the truth. Let's tell the truth about ourselves. We've seen God do amazing things here. People have grown and followed Jesus in unique and powerful ways. We've also been through deep, deep hurt, We've sinned. We withheld empathy, compassion. We withheld grace and peace from each other. And we have withheld partnership. So Calvary Church, how does death, new life, 40 days, and a new spirit look like for us? It could start like this. And I've had some staff help me with this. Because when I get stuck, I reach out and say, what do you think? We've come up with some prayers that we want to pray through for each decade of our church. The prayers of thanksgiving, the prayers of repentance. I invite you to join in reading these prayers with me, but only if you want to. It is, I'm not going to say read this repentance prayer. It's like telling your kid to say you're sorry when they don't even know what they're sorry for but I invite you into reading these with me. You may choose to read them at different times or not. Some of you may join me because you've known people from the past that have gone here and you want to stand in the gap with me. You may want to join in when we hit the decade, maybe of when you started coming. I'll leave that up to you. You may want to stand when you join in. You may want to sit when you join in. You may stand silently and not say a word. You might sit silently and not say a word. But this is for all of us in this room. And the thousands of people who are no longer in this room. Because they've moved. Because they've left. I'll let them tell their own story. I talked to six pastors this week who no longer work here. Just different decades. And... And I've told them what we're doing today. I got texts from all six this morning saying, I'm praying with you and for this church today. Calvary Church, this has been a gathering of your people, Father, in this place since 1947. Some of you have been here for decades, and some of you are new. But this is for all of us. And if you're new... I hope what you hear the next few minutes is a group of people telling themselves the truth in a world that lies to themselves all the time. So let's pray for the 1940s and 50s. Thank you, God, for this church, its impact, its passion its purpose, and for those who came to a saving relationship with Jesus in the early years of 1947 through the 50s. Father, we also repent and ask that you have mercy on us, O God, according to your unfailing love, for the sins of our church, our people, and for those we hurt in those early years. Create in us a clean heart, Father. In the 1960s, thank you, God, for this church, its impact, its passion, its purpose, and for those who came to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ through its ministries in the 1960s. Father, we also repent and ask, according to your great compassion, to blot out the transgressions of our church, our people, our people, And those we hurt in that decade renew in us, renew a steadfast spirit within us, Father, in the 1970s. Thank you, God, for this church, its impact, its passion, its purpose, and for those who came to a saving relationship with Jesus through its ministry in the 1970s. Father, we also repent and ask that you wash away all our iniquity and cleanse us from the sins of our church, our people, and those we hurt in that decade. Don't cast us from your presence. Restore us, Father, for the 80s. Thank you, God, for this church, its impact, its passion its purpose, and for those who came to a saving relationship with Jesus through its ministries in the 1980s. Father, we also repent. For against you and you only has our church and our people sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We ask for your forgiveness and for the forgiveness of those we hurt in that decade. Don't take your Holy Spirit from us. Restore us, Father. Thank you, God, 90s. Thank you, God, for this church, its impact, its passion, its purpose, and for those who came to a saving relationship with Jesus through its ministries in the 1990s. Father, we also repent. Please hide your face from our sins and blot out all the iniquity of our church, our people and those we hurt in that decade. Father, restore to us the joy of your salvation. The 2000s. Thank you, God, for this church, its impact, its passion, its purpose, and for those who came to a saving relationship with Jesus through its ministries in the beginning of the 2000s. Father, I also repent and ask you to cleanse us and we will be clean. Wash us and it will be whiter than snow from the sins of our church, our people, and those we hurt in that decade. Father, grant us a teachable and willing spirit to sustain us. And since 2010, thank you God for this church, its impact, its passion, Its purpose, and for those who came to a saving relationship through its ministry starting in 2010 to the present. Father, we also repent and ask for your forgiveness for the sins of our church, our people, and those we hurt. We mourn our losses, our shattered dreams, life's unfairness, our hurts, and the ways we have hurt others. Give us a new heart and put a new spirit in us. Restore us, Father. It's now 2022, and God has given us a new life, a new spirit, a new day for this church. Which way will we go? Will we cling to what was and resuscitate or let go and receive what can be A resurrected place. The 40 days have begun. The 40 days where the disciples thought, Jesus is back in the morning of Jesus leaving. But if they didn't let him go, the new spirit would not have come. So for us at Calvary, we need to identify the joys of the life of Calvary, things you have loved, the people you have known, the ministries you've been a part of. Thank God for those. Cherish those, but don't cling to them. And then identify the pain, the disappointments and frustrations you've experienced in this life at Calvary, things that didn't go well, the times of hurt and frustration of sins. We identify to celebrate and let it ascend. We identify to forgive or ask forgiveness to let it ascend. And God has something new. My friends, we don't just have to hope. We don't just have to throw out lines like, the best days are ahead of us. When we let go, God promises the best days are ahead of you because I'm in the work of resurrection, I'm in the work of reconciliation. I'm in the work of my kingdom come, my will be done, on earth, as it is in heaven. As a um, tangible exercise for us over the next forty days, we're going to have we have up in the back now in the lobby, it's um, a board or a wall called Ascension, right? All right I have that right, right. And then it's also in our gathering that's taking place in the Parkside rooms. There's one that says Ascension as well. It's a place for you as it's a tangible way of maybe writing. There's pens in there. You can place up things that you want to let go of. And over the next 40 days, it could be something of this church. It could be something really good. Like, I just want to celebrate this is what was, and I'm not trying to resuscitate on new things. So it's just a tangible expression of the next 40 days, which goes to December 5th, when we're really launching into our season of really remembering and celebrating Jesus coming to this earth. So those walls will be up as a tangible way of expression. I invite you to be a part of that. So let me close by praying this over you. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. God bless you all. Continue to hear that. Lock into that as you leave this. The noise of this world wants to pull you away, but lock into what God's saying to you today. God bless you. Have a great, great day. Surprised by a mercy that's new every morning.